Well, I have something uh, somewhat difficult to talk with you about today. Um, I'll kind of ease into it a little bit. Um, a few years ago, I became aware of these kinds of things. I call them the that's not right category of life. And my first knowledge of that was, uh, remember the lady that spilled coffee on herself from McDonald's and sued them because it was too hot? You know, she offered to settle for $20,000. McDonald's, they refused. They went to court. She not only won much more than that for compensatory damages, she got 2.7 million in punitive damages. Now, I know she got burned pretty badly, but I wonder if all of that was you know, quite equal in value. It made me wonder, is that right? Is that really the you know, right way to compensate somebody for that? I mean, she had some responsibility. She spilled it, right? That's not right. Well, I know one guy that uh, was in, in prison, he was in Virginia, and he decided to take this new approach because the one he had been taking wasn't working well for him. After filing a number of unsuccessful lawsuits against the prison system, he sued himself. He claimed that his civil rights and religious beliefs had been violated when he allowed himself to get drunk. After all, it was his inebriation that created his cycle of committing crimes and being incarcerated. So he demanded $5 million from himself. And since he didn't have any way to earn an income because he was behind bars, he felt the state should pay. The states thought, that's not right. They threw it out. Smart thinking. I'm driving a car still, in 2006 Mazda 6, kind of a pale green color. We got that car through a deal, a really good deal, through a friend of ours in Texas who dealt in cars and happened on this vehicle. It seems that it sat in a warehouse of an attorney for about five years, only had 20,000 miles on it when we got it. It was part of a lawsuit, and so it was locked away for a while because it was material evidence. It was a rental car, and it seems that the lady who rented it, when she got out of the car, she had failed to put it in park, and so the thing rolled forward, it ran over her foot. So she sued the rental car company and won. That's not right. But I got a good car for a good price, so I'm not complaining about it. Uh, now, those are the ones that I would call more trivial, to be sure. There's some very serious things that happen that are not right in this world. Remember just a few months ago, back in July, in Nice, France, that truck that ran over all of those people. Remember that? Terrible thing that happened. The man from Tunisia lost most of his family, couldn't even speak for months. It so traumatized him. Um, Jerrica Bolin is another name that comes to mind. She's a young woman that had a very serious condition, spinal muscular atrophy type 2. From the moment of her birth, she could never walk. And even as a teen, the only movement she had was in her hands and a little bit in her head. She's the one that decided to end her own life because the pain had grown unbearable. The medication could no longer manage the pain, and the medicine was just devastating her body. And so she elected to unplug, and she died. And it's not just news stories where these things happen. They, they happen close to home. My wife and I were on a trip for conference business when I worked in Southeastern California Conference, the conference where San Diego is. And we left our two children with a babysitter. On their way home from school, the day that we were coming home, they decided to take my daughter's best friend. She, they were both in the eighth grade, and my, my little boy was in the fourth grade. Uh, they decided to pick her up after school as well and take her to her aunt's house two blocks away so they could change for Pathfinders and then go to Pathfinders together. 
Well, they pulled up to the corner right around from the school, but it was late in the day. The sun was coming right down that road, county line road. It goes east and west, and it was just very late in the day. It was so late, you, the sun was almost right on top of the road, and you almost couldn't see anything. And the babysitter pulled out, didn't see the car coming, and they were T-boned. And my daughter's best friend's spine snapped, brainstem. Within a couple of seconds, she lost consciousness. And a couple of days later, they unplugged her and she died. My friends, my, my kids rather, just a couple scratches, bruise or two. But my friend Bernie's daughter, Tanya, would not leave the hospital alive. And we were faced with some tough questions. Questions like, what is Tanya's death an eighth-grade girl with so much life ahead of her. What does her death say about God? If God's got the power to intervene, why didn't he? I mean, there's so much garbage that happens in this world that it makes you think and wonder if God is really as powerful as, as we think he is or he claims he is. Is he really just impotent? Or is he just grossly unfair to things that happen to people in this life? You know, this issue of God's fairness has caused many people to walk away from him. They don't know how to answer the questions. And while I'm not at all inclined to follow their lead, I will concede their point because unfairness is all over the place. It's in your life and in mine, right? Somebody once said, and this is an incredible quote, it was attributed to St. Francis, but I don't think he said it, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. You can even find it in Scripture. We're going to take a little journey into Acts chapter 12 this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles with me, you'll see how clearly the questions about God's fairness can be raised, even from the words of Scripture. Acts chapter 12, we'll begin reading, not at the beginning of the chapter, but at verse 6. You'll know the story as soon as we start to read it. The night before Herod was to bring him, meaning Peter, to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. That's got to have been an interesting scene, you know, quietly sleeping in the middle of the night where it's nice and dark. I don't know about you, but I like to have it dark. Went around the hotel room last night and pulled the curtains really tight, turned the clock upside down because it radiated this sort of amber light, kind of kept me awake, unplugged the night light from the bathroom. I like it dark. Peter, I think, probably was sleeping in the dark, and this light came. But that's not the first miracle. You know what the first miracle is in that little part of the story? That Peter's sound asleep, right? I mean, this is supposed to be the night before he goes on trial for his life, and they don't let you have all of these years of appeals, you know? If they continue to death, they take you out, and, and it's done. This was, in all probability, all he knew the night before he was to be executed, and Peter's sleeping like a baby. Peter's come a long way, hasn't he? 
Peter's come a long way. It's amazing that he could feel that way. He was sleeping so calmly and deeply, the angel had to kind of, come on, Peter, wake up, let's go. What an incredible miracle that was. Well, let's keep reading the story. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. What an incredible moment and experience. I don't know what defines thrill for you. A place where Dan Hansen and I used to go to school nearby... Uh, Mount Pisgah Academy is where we're from, but uh, Charlotte, they have this uh, amusement park there now, Carowinds. They've got the tallest roller coaster in the United States right now. That first jump, you know how tall that is? You've got to start at the beginning of the goal line at Mile High Stadium and go 25 feet deep into the, into the end zone at the opposite end. That's 325 feet. That's how high that first drop is. That would be a thrill, wouldn't it? Or maybe a couple of the black diamond slopes, you know, on Vail or Crested Butte or someplace around here. That'd be a thrill. That would terrify me to death. But I can't think of any thrill any greater than to be personally, directly, divinely delivered. Can you imagine having an experience in your life where it is unmistakable that it was God that showed up and did that for you? I can't think of anything that would make a greater mark on me. Can't imagine how Peter must have been feeling. Well, verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. I love that verse. So much is in there. You see what's happening here? Peter's out of prison. Where, where's he going to go? The first people he thought of was this home. Why? Why? Because he knew if there was a crisis, this home would be in prayer. What an incredible thing to have your home be known for. If there's a crisis, you're in prayer. You know, a lot of us ought to be in prayer these days. If you looked around the world, see what's going on. But I wonder, are our homes known for something like that? Just ask it. Well, this next part has both the comical and the very sad in it. You'll be able to pick out both, I'm pretty sure. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, that's not so strange as it might sound. They actually believed in those years that when a person died for at least a few hours afterwards, sometimes for a few days, the person that was their guardian angel, not the person, but the angel who was their guardian angel actually assumed their form and would be about the, the places where they were. And sometimes those angels were visible. So that's what they thought it was. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, you see the comical in here, right? Obviously. Now, Peter is not known for his subtlety. 
If anything, Peter is known for the opposite of that. You know, some people, they say, go through life heart first. Other people go through life head first. Peter went through life mouth first. Seems like he was always getting himself in trouble somewhere. He was not subtle about anything in his life, and he wasn't afraid to cause a commotion anywhere, always seeming to put his foot in his mouth. But can you just envision the scene here? I'm sure that at first, because, you know, he'd just been let out of prison, he kind of knocked quietly just loud enough in order to be heard, and Rhoda came to the door and saw it was him, and she was so excited, she ran back and left him on the outside. Do you think Peter kept knocking quietly? I'm pretty sure it... Hey, let me in, Rhoda! He didn't care who heard him at that point. Let me in, I gotta get off this... Come on, open the door! That must have been a funny scene. They'd never heard an angel knocking, so they went to see if that was really an angel. And it was Peter. And did you see the two very sad statements? The first one, you're out of your mind. And second, they were astonished. We believe, but do we really believe? If they believed as earnestly as they prayed, their reaction would have been, I think, quite different. My dad used to sing in the King's Heralds years ago. Some of you might know that. This was back in the early 60s. And they were on a trip to Hawaii. I used to be jealous of some of the places he got to go. Um, Hawaii must have been fun. But I was young enough to not really care that much at that time. We had our beach in Santa Monica. We were okay. They had an afternoon off, and so they went to the beach Walking around without paying real close attention to where he was, my dad stepped on a sea urchin, and some of the little spines broke off and got embedded in his heel. And there's a little poison to those sometimes, some varieties of them. And so over the next few hours, his foot began to swell up. It began to become infected because of whatever it was that sea urchin injected into him, and those little parts were still in there. And by the time the trip was over, a couple days later, his foot was so large he couldn't even fit it into his shoe. So he gets home, and it's like on a Sunday, and he calls up his doctor. You know, that, those were the years when you could call up your doctor on Sunday. And he explained what happened, and he said, well, you need to go right down to the hospital. Go to Glendale Adventist Medical Center. Go right down there right now, and I'll meet you. And he looked at his foot, and he said, John, you're in trouble here. This is a huge infection. It was, it was almost twice its normal size by this time. He said, you're going to be in the hospital for at least two weeks while we get this under control. This is really serious. Dad said, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I'm supposed to be in Missouri for camp meeting by the end of this week. What am I going to do? He said, I don't know, but you're not going to Missouri. So Dad, oh, okay. Well, later that evening, Sunday night, he hears these kind of long, clomping footsteps coming down the hall. Elder Richard Sr. was a very tall, lanky man, and he wore these shoes that had kind of heavy heels on them. As soon as he heard that sound, he knew who it was. And he thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. Elder Richards walked into the room and instead of saying, hi, John, I'm so sorry to hear about your foot. He said, what are you doing here? We need you at Missouri camp meeting on Thursday night. That's when we start. You've got to be there. Well, Dad said, I'm sorry. I'm going to be here two weeks. No, you're not. You're going to be in Missouri on Thursday night. He said, well, I'm really sorry. There's nothing I can do about this. He said, bow your head. So he prayed for him. He said, Lord, you know, we need to have quartet all together. Quartet means four. Got to have everybody there. Need John there. Please heal his foot. We need him. Amen. Got up and said, I'll see you Thursday in Missouri. Dad didn't want to argue with Elder Richards. Who wants to argue with Elder Richards? But he knew it wasn't going to happen. 
Monday they got in their car and drove, got to their hotel. That evening, there was a ring on his phone. My dad picked it up at Elder Richards. Didn't even say hello. He just said, bow your head. Okay. Lord, you know, we need John here. Amen. Next night, same thing. Now it's Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Feels a little better, but he knows he's still in the hospital for a while. Rounds come around late in the evening. The doctor comes in Wednesday night, peels the bandages back to look at the foot. And he has this kind of funny look on his face. He says, uh, does it hurt when I press here? Dad said, no. How about here? No. Well, how about here? No. John, your foot's fine. The swelling's gone. The infection's gone. You can go home. So dad went home and called up the manager of the voice and said, hey, you can get me a plane ticket. I can still get to Missouri camp meeting tomorrow in time for the meeting tomorrow night. He said, I'll do my best. And he got him a ticket, got him the plane first thing in the morning. You know, when you're going east, you lose the time. So he got there and uh, got the rental car and drove as fast as he could to get over to the campgrounds where they were holding the camp meeting that year. He was running late. Traffic was heavy. He thought, man, I'm not going to make this unless I really get lucky here. So he pulled into the campgrounds just about the time the meeting was starting. And as he was driving in, he was thinking, isn't Elder Richards going to be surprised? He's not going to believe this. I can't wait to see the look on his face when I show up. So he parks the car and he kind of runs in and, and, and they're lined up right and they're literally beginning to walk up onto the platform. And my dad just kind of glides in there and gets his place in line. And Elder Richards looks over at him and says, you're late. We believe, but do we really believe? You know what I'm grateful for is all those times when God is gracious to us even when we don't believe, when our belief is not as earnest as our prayers. Well, there's a context to this story for Peter. It starts at verse 1 of this chapter, and this is where the difficulty comes in. It says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After releasing him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four guards of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. You see the problem here? You got a guy named Herod who's got in his DNA a little bit of bloodthirst. He is the grandson of the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem and the nephew of the one who killed John the Baptist. But he well noted, as any politician does, you know, put their finger to the wind. Oh, the people like that. So he went after Peter. And wasn't it great for Peter that he got delivered? Cool that he got such a marvelous bailout. Wonderful that he got personal, direct, divine intervention. It's important to be able to see God's power, isn't it? It's vital to know that prayers mean something. And isn't it wonderful when somebody like Herod gets their comeuppance? That's great. Great for Peter. So, what about James? 
James gets one verse in this story, and Peter gets 12. The guy who loses his life gets one lousy verse. Maybe, maybe it's all verse 5, you know. Peter was kept in prison, so the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Maybe James didn't get any prayers. Maybe he wasn't important enough to merit that kind of attention in people's hearts. But do be careful here. Whenever the three were mentioned together, you got Peter and John and James. Somehow he must have balanced out Peter and John, and Jesus needed him to be a part of that little group. James was very important to the church. You can't go by how much a person's mentioned, by how important they are, because after this story, Peter only shows up one more time in the book of Acts. He, he kind of drops in in Acts 15. And then we never hear from him again in the rest of the New Testament, except for a couple of mentions in some of Paul's epistles and, of course, the letters he wrote. But that's not about him. That's from him. So Peter's dropping off the map here, too. Does that mean he's no longer important? I'll wager there were a lot of prayers being offered for James. He was, after all, the first apostolic martyr. And I think he was as special to Jesus as was Peter. So now we're left with the questions again. Why not James instead of Peter? Or how about James and Peter? What is God thinking when one dies and the other gets a miraculous escape? What's fair about that? What is God thinking when one gets tragedy and another one escapes it? I have a front page of a USA Today that I keep. It's kind of interesting in light of stuff today. It's dated January 16, 2009. Now, if you know your American civics pretty well, you'll know that uh, that's pretty close to an inauguration day, the first inauguration of President Barack Obama. And he's uh, right here, the very top part. But that's not why I kept this. I kept it because of this part. I know you probably can't see it well, but this is a picture of that airline that landed in the Hudson River, and every single person walked out alive. Sully Sullenberger. Tom Hanks just played him a little while ago. You know you made it when Tom Hanks plays you in a movie. Incredible story. I was speaking Friday night at Loma Linda University Church. We were doing, the college pastors group were doing a week of prayer there, and, and they had asked me to speak on Friday night. This had just happened the day before, and this was Friday's edition. The reason this is forever etched into my mind is because in the audience that night, in the congregation that night, were some friends of ours named the Wilkins family. The Wilkins had a son named Monty who was in my oldest daughter's class right along with Tonya. Just as his mother and two of his older siblings had done before him, he boarded a plane earlier, a couple years before that, to go to our college in Cologne, France. It was kind of a family tradition. The problem was he stepped aboard Swiss Air 111. So here I am looking out the faces of my friends who lost their child and we're celebrating this miracle from the day before. God, why? That's the question we usually ask, isn't it? Why? And if you're like me, you feel like God's got some splaining to do. 
Over the years, people have asked me when things have happened in their lives, why, Pastor, why? You know what I tell them? I tell them what I told Bernie the night when I first saw him, when his daughter died in that auto accident, with my kids walking away. I said, Bernie, I don't understand any of this. But God has not been silent in the face of our questions. He has given an answer, but it's different than what we were expecting. It's not what we wanted to hear. It's not found where we've been looking. And I also think that as he gives us his answer, he asks us a question. Don't you hate it when people answer your question with another question? Well, God sort of does that here too. Because as God gives us his full answer, he also asks a question, and it goes something like this. Will you trust me? Even though what is happening doesn't look good, will you trust me? It's the kind of trust that I think Brennan Manning was thinking of when he wrote this line. He's talking about trust that is not at the mercy of the response it receives. I'm going to say that one more time. That's a powerful statement. God asks of us trust that is not at the mercy of the response that it receives. World War II, some British soldiers were pinned down at Dunkirk. They sent a three-word message back home, but if not, but if not. Today's world, they could say that, nobody would catch it. Biblical illiteracy is at such a high, nobody would catch it. But that was an allusion to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had just been threatened with a fiery furnace. The king said, if you don't bow down, you're going there. They said, we're not going. We believe our God can deliver us, but if not, we're still going to remain faithful. Those three words galvanized the British forces, and they mounted a rescue effort. That effort became known as the miracle of Dunkirk because their people let them know that even if it got worse, even if they lost their their lives, they would be faithful to their tasks. They displayed trust that is not at the mercy of the response that it receives. Well, God's answer to our questions and our rantings and our ravings, let's just admit it, sometimes we're mad at God, aren't we? And if you don't admit that, you're not telling me the truth. I'm your pastor today, so don't lie to me, I'm your pastor. You've been mad at God before, haven't you? By the way, don't worry, he can take it. He can take it. But God didn't answer us with legal documents or a parade of witnesses. His answer was so different than what we were expecting. What he did was he simply, quietly, lovingly, and freely presented himself. He presented himself to be subject to the very same unfairness to which we are subject. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something very, very dangerous. I should never do this. No preacher should do this this late in the sermon. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a few minutes. You know what they say about people who sleep in church, don't you? You know, 
if you laid everybody end to end on the pews who sleep in church, they'd be a lot more comfortable, you know. I'm a little scared to have you close your eyes this long, but I want you to do it because I want you to hear his answer in, in the quiet of your heart, not even looking at me. I'm going to read you a few words and phrases, short words and phrases, out of the last day of Jesus' life. And I want these words to have a weight in your soul that they don't have when you're just reading them. I want you to listen to them, and I want you to allow your mind and your emotions to take you wherever these words take you. For these words are his answers to our questions. Matthew 26. Plotted. Kill him. 30 pieces of silver. Judas. Betray. My soul is overwhelmed. May this cup be taken from me. Here comes my betrayer, Judas. Large crowd, swords and clubs, kiss, seized, arrested. false evidence, worthy of death, spit in his face, struck, fists, slapped. I don't know the man, rooster. Bound him, accused, Barabbas, flogged, handed him over, stripped him, crown of thorns. knelt and mocked, spit, struck him again and again, crucified him, casting lots, insults, mocked, darkness, Jesus cried out, Why? Forsaken. 
you can open your eyes. No act in history, not James instead of Peter, not little Jerica Boland, not that man that lost his family and niece, not my friend Bernie losing his daughter, not all the police shootings we've had, police being shot at and police shooting at, and not even politics is more unfair than the treatment and death of Jesus. And only the cross could answer the charges and prove that unfairness is a mark of sin and a strategy of the enemy and not that of the innocent Lamb of God. So what does Jesus do now that the cross is spoken? Does Jesus leave the unfairness thing alone now that the answer has been given? <laughs> Strangely enough, the answer is no, because Jesus rose up from the grave eternally determined to be unfair himself. I'd like you to read these words with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read it to you out of the Revised Standard Thurber version. Okay? It may read a little different than yours, but that's okay. Ephesians 2, will begin with verse 4. It goes like this. Because of his great unfairness for us, God, who is rich in unfairness, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by unfairness that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable unfairness of his unfairness expressed in his unfairness to us. In Christ Jesus, for it is by unfairness that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Should I read it again right this time? Maybe these words will never be the same to you again. For they go like this, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift. So now when something happens that you know is not right, you and God have a different kind of conversation. It can go something like this. God, this happened to me and it's not fair. What are you going to do? It's at that moment that these words reverberate from his heart to your. He says, my child, you're right. It's not fair. And I truly understand how you feel because I have been there. And my child, I hope that while there's at least a little comfort in knowing that I've experienced it too, the best news is that my facing what you have faced allows me to make some of the most outlandish promises ever spoken. 
And I want you to hear them through a trusted friend of mine named John who jotted these down for me years ago so that when you need them, they might be seared into your heart. And for that, we turn to our final scripture, Revelation chapter 21. Hear the words that Jesus wrote through his beloved disciple. And hear what those great promises he has made will mean to you and to me. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more unfairness, for there'll be no more death or mournings or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and new. Isn't that a powerful promise? I hope what his life and death means to you is that you can see that even though we deserve justice, we get grace and mercy and we get those promises. You might think that now all that's left to do is to just hang on to him for dear life no matter what happens. And that might seem like a good plan, but it's not the best plan. As important as that is, you should know about something even more important than you hanging on to him. It's that you are precious in his sight. And he will hold on to you.
Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast for my life he bled and died Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied He will hold me fast Raise to theme on endless life He will hold me fast Till my faith is turned to sight When He comes at last Savior loves me so. For my Savior loves me so. For my Savior loves me so. Father dear, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. I thank you for his promises. And right now, today, Lord, as we're thinking about all the things that happen to us in this life that are not fair, I thank you especially for his sacrifice and for the surety of knowing that even through those times where we have questions bigger than our faith, you will hold us tightly and you will not let us go. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to draw us into yourself, to hold us close even when we're mad at you. Thank you for the great promises, Lord. Thank you for being a great Savior. And may the great day come soon, Lord, when our faith shall be sight and all the tears will be wiped away and we can be with you forever. Thank you for those promises. And may that reality be rooted deeply in each and every heart here in this beautiful congregation today. I pray in Jesus' name.